from 11FS. This is Fintech Insider News, and I am your host, Benjamin Ensor. We've just waved goodbye to today's guests after another show full to the brim with big stories and great conversations. We're covering Alloy's launch in the UK, and we talked about how with increasing cybercrime and global criminals, it's really important to have strong capabilities of things like know your customer, uh, know your business, and so on. We talked about new regulation plans for buy now, pay later in the UK. And we talked about how these regulations are very welcome because they'll level the playing field and provide more clarity to customers. And if anything, um, it would be great if those regulations came through even faster. And we talked about can you talk to your significant other about money? So off the back of a love heart campaign by the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, we talked about whether people can or can't have conversations um, about money with their partners and who they'd like to send a love heart to in the financial services industry. We'll get into all this and much more. But first, a few brief messages. Don't go away. Hey there, financial risk and compliance professionals. Would you like to know how your peers are preparing for the year ahead? Well, the good news is Comply Advantage's new State of Financial Crime report is built on a global survey of 800 senior compliance professionals, so it provides a clear-eyed look at the views of the financial services industry. To explore trends including environmental crime, crowdfunding, sanctions on Russia, and much more, download your copy of the report at complyadvantage.com insights. Here at 11FS, we believe in explaining FS without the BS. That's why we created our 11FS Explore series, videos that break down a complicated financial services topic into something everyone can get their head around, such as non-fungible tokens, buy now, pay later, the cost of living, ESG, circular economies, embedded finance, and inclusive design. Search 11FS Explores on YouTube now. Welcome to episode 708 of Fintech Insider. I'm Benjamin Ensor, Director of Research and Strategy at 11FS, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by some great guests to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. First of all, I am joined by my co-host, who is sitting next to me in the studio, which is always nice, Amy Gavin, Strategy Lead at 11FS. How are you doing, Amy? Hi, Benjamin. Um, looking forward to talking through some good stories today. Um, got some great guests too, so should be a good show. Without naming any names, are you working on any interesting projects at the moment? Um, yes, working on a project um, for a global card issuer um, that's very closely related to fintech and um, how fintechs are, what they want to see, what they need, what they expect. So we're interviewing a load of fintechs to find out um, more about their jobs to be done at the moment. So that's super interesting. Fantastic. Okay, well, first of all, we have a welcome return to Fintech Insider for Edwina Johnson, Head of Global at Alloy. Welcome back to the show, Edwina. We'll get to your news a little later, but can you give our listeners a reminder about you and Alloy, please? Yes, hello. Thanks for having me. Um, So, Edwina, I head up Global Expansion at Alloy, and Alloy is an identity decisioning platform that helps banks and fintechs automate their decisions for onboarding, transaction monitoring, and credit underwriting. Fantastic. Thank you. We also have a welcome return to Fintech Insider for Douglas Soltis, Editor-in-Chief of BetaKit. Welcome back, Douglas. Can you remind our listeners about you and BetaKit, please? Yeah, uh, BetaKit is a business publication that covers Canadian tech and tech from a Canadian perspective. And we have a a healthy dollop of fintech coverage, um, which is, I think, why I've been asked to return. uh, And always good to be back. And uh, we've just demonstrated the difference between the British and the Canadian accent with my inability to pronounce the name of your company properly. No, no, we, 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 we localize in all regions. BDKit is entirely appropriate depending upon the region. Fully acceptable. And completing our returning guests uh, this week, we also welcome back Alex Marsh, head of the UK at Klarna. I think pretty much all of our listeners are familiar with Klarna, but just um, for those who've been under a rock, can you remind them what Klarna is, please? Yeah, so Klarna is a payments and a shopping disruptor, so uh, particularly well known for buy now, pay later. I was looking back through my notes, Benjamin, so I was last with you almost exactly a year ago, uh, where similarly uh, talking about regulation of buy now, pay later. So it's been quite a journey. It's been a lot of my focus leading the UK business at Klarna for the last couple of years. So yeah, excited to see some developments on that in the past week. 
I'll bet. Well, welcome back to all of you. And with that, let's get into the news. So our first story is that US fintech unicorn Alloy is launching in the UK. So this was reported in UK Tech News and various other places. New York headquartered Alloy has launched in the UK, establishing the fintech company's first physical location outside of its home market. Last September, Alloy raised $52 million in Series C capital at a $1.55 billion valuation. The company has created a single API that conducts know-your-customer and business anti-money laundering and compliance checking for banks and other financial services companies. The fintech will move into a property near London's Liverpool Street station, so quite close to us, where it will have five employees. Founded in 2015, Alloy's software is used by over 350 North American banks and fintechs. Edwina, great to have you here for this one. Firstly, congratulations. Um, are you in London? I'm taking it you're not because you haven't joined us in the studio. Oh, I am in London. Yeah, I am. You? Sorry, I should well, be in the studio with you. <laughs> we've missed a trick there. It would have been nice to have seen you in person. Uh, <laughs> why, um, why has Alloy cho- chosen the UK for its first um, location outside the States? Yeah, there are a couple of reasons. So first one is the fintech ecosystem. It's still the second largest fintech ecosystem in the world after the States. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of that's to do with having collaborative regulators um, that have encouraged the innovation in fintech, but also um, provided a space for technology to meet those regulations as well. Uh, and then, you know, secondly, we work with a lot of multinational fintechs in the States. And one of the first markets that they are expanding into is often the UK. So kind of thinking about helping our existing client base expand. And then lastly, if you're a startup and you're um, wanting to expand and create a new office in a new territory, um, then it's always more likely to be successful if you have an early employee base locally and, and able to support on that. Definitely. Um, how, does, how does financial crime change from market to market? Because I, I presume that, that criminals are pretty global and they're pretty quick to copy techniques from country to country. Do you find that your clients are dealing with pretty much the same challenges in market to market? Or is there some nuances because criminals kind of exploit uh, regulations or they exploit certain techniques that are maybe used in some countries and not others? So do you find it's the same similar challenges or are are there sort of nuances and differences by country? Yeah, there's a lot of overlap in fraud behaviours. And I think, you know, some of that came across in a recent fraud report that we did where we spoke to over 250 people in fraud roles at banks and fintechs, um, and all of them had experienced fraud. 91% experienced an increase in fraud and very similar overlaps in the types of frauds that are coming through. Um, Where we might see differences are things like in the UK, the authorized push payment fraud is is a much bigger issue here. Uh, And that's partly because of real-time payments, um, and then the banks being on the hook for the fraud costs. Um, And then, yeah, and then the fraud being often socially engineered makes it a little bit more tricky. Uh, And then when you think about the ID uh, regulations, verification regulations in different markets, um, there's kind of different trends that have come out. So uh, in Germany, you're going to need the video verification. um, And in the Nordics, um, there's more popular uptake of electronic IDs. So then there's different fraud that comes up around those. Amy, let's let's bring you into this story. Um, obviously, cyber criminals are, are a sort of global, I hesitate to say business, but, you know, it's a global operation. Um, but, but presumably the economic downturn starts, you know, as that starts to push other people, um, you know, into difficulties. Do you think we start to see an uptick in, you know, maybe sort of lower level fraud? I'm assuming the answer to that is yes, because... I have certainly seen from um, the providers that I bank with an increase in communication about fraud scams and warnings to customers that certain types of fraud exist and helping you to understand what those are, what those mean, what those could look like. Like, for example, I logged into my HSBC app the other day and it was um, warning me about romance scams, not to be uh, 
uh, conned into giving anybody money that's trying to message me <laughs> under the guise of being romantic. So um, that was one example. But I think financial services companies definitely have a responsibility um, to look after consumers in this way. And the fact that their communication around fraud has increased suggests that they're seeing more cases of it um, and wanting to prevent it from their side. Edwina, are you seeing slightly different patterns of, of fraud? I mean, does it just the economic downturn in various different countries around the world, does that sort of obviously trigger, you know, either for people to fall for certain types of fraud or, or, or possibly for criminals to, you know, really push particular types of fraud harder? Yeah, I think one of the things that we noticed is that a lot of the pandemic loans were given out to fraudulent customers, which meant that a, a, like um, the fraud ecosystem had a huge venture round of fundraising, essentially. And so there are more... Um, there's more bad operators out there that are um, bringing more people into fraud rings and, and running more fraudulent activity generally. Thank you. Um, Douglas and Alex, let's, let's bring you, you two in on, uh, on this question of sort of expanding into to other markets. Maybe, uh, maybe I can come to you, Alex, first on um, you know, some of Klarna's challenges. Obviously, you're a multi-country, multinational operation, um, but each time you move into a new country, there's different nuances and so on. What, what have you sort of learned as a business about moving into new countries what's what's easy and what's what's hard yeah it's an interesting one i think so we've launched 10 new markets in the past 18 months and sort of really ramped up the rate of expansion i think a lot of the lessons actually from when we launched in the uk all the way back in 2014 we're now able to apply um, to some of these new markets so interestingly from a product perspective our model is build product global with relatively lightweight localization so small changes that need to be made whether that is for very specific kind of local you know, regulation requirements or kind of disclosure requirements. Um, so the product side actually we've got working very well. I think one of the lessons from the UK for us has been, and we're applying it now, is to, to really utilize the ecosystem that's there already available to support you in coming to a market. So whether that's industry bodies and groups, kind of trade associations, likes of Finance. For us, given our Swedish heritage, actually we've done quite a lot with the Swedish Chamber of Commerce in the UK who helped us with some of our sort of, whether it was like visa and talent and bringing people across from our HQ in Stockholm to the UK. And actually I think we did well on that side, but interestingly, engagement maybe into regulators, political stakeholders, media, we came quite late. So we were seeing huge demand from consumers, seeing retailers, we saw really strong growth. Um, left a bit of a gap, I suppose, in understanding of how our products worked, who was using our products amongst some of those kind of policymakers, for example. And I think that led to some of the challenges where we were almost like playing catch up over the past couple of years um, to try and educate and so making sure, for example, then when they're looking at regulation, that it makes sense. Um, and so going to new markets, that's been something where we're engaging a lot earlier with those groups to make sure they really understand who we are, what we stand for. Um, and, you know, the value that we're bringing to people, you know, within that new market or country. So um, definitely would recommend that to others and utilize groups that can help you build those relationships with policymakers quickly. So rather than kind of, you know, calling, you know, as a new brand, new name that you, never, you know, haven't heard of, you know, things like industry groups can be amazing for that where they've already got that network. Fantastic. Douglas, you've got some, um, you know, world-class tech businesses and, and fintechs in Canada, you know, firms like Shopify and so on. What, what have you, what lessons have you seen from, from either from Canadian fintechs sort of trying to expand or succeeding in expanding overseas or from other businesses sort of launching into Canada um, from, from other markets? Um, have you seen patterns of success, patterns of failure? It's certainly patterns, I, not necessarily of success. I think, and I, I, being on the podcast in the past, speaking to this, I think the lesson for Canadian fintech recently has been to not expand overseas uh, or to quickly pull out as soon as possible because it's not gone well for them. I think in the last two years, we've seen both Wealthsimple and ClearCo uh, completely remove themselves uh, outside of the overseas market. I think ClearCo is still operating across North America, Wealthsimple just in Canada. Um, I think for a couple of reasons, mostly because uh, many of the fintechs here are looking to mirror services that are offered uh, elsewhere in the world. And I don't think there's been a long history of a great pathway or pipeline to expand into new markets. So I think what we've seen more here in Canada is uh, global fintech players. Uh, actually, we just, I think, wrote a story uh, last year about uh Klarna coming here and expanding a tech hub in in Toronto, like I guess almost a year to the day, uh, strangely. Um, it, it seems to be a much easier pathway to enter the Canadian market. 
I think predominantly because Canada is so desperate for uh, competition here when it comes to a variety of financial services. So uh, for Canadian fintech unicorns here, we've been mostly seeing a pulling back for a variety of reasons we get into. Like I think the global macroeconomic conditions have definitely cause issues. But we're mostly often tracking a variety of global players coming into Canada and offering services that aren't just matched here. Really interesting. Edwina, I want to bring this story back to you for, for the sort of final bit, because we started by talking about, about fraud, but of course, that's only part of what you do. Um, which of the, of the services that you offer, which ones do you think are going to be most most immediately successful or most appealing to some of the um, sort of businesses in Europe? I mean, is it the sort of anti-money laundering capabilities, the compliance checking, the know your customer, know your business? Um, what's your sort of instinct or hunch or, or fact um, about uh, which which services are proving most relevant to, to um, customers on this side of the pond? Yeah, I think we're seeing at the moment interest across the board. And, and part of that reason is um, that we can provide a connected view of identity. So instead of treating onboarding as a separate thing, transaction monitoring as a separate thing, you can start having one view of your customer's identity, no matter where they're at in the journey, and then making smarter decisions on that and seeing a trend for people who, who want to have that view. Very interesting. It ties into the, the, the work you've been doing, Amy, thinking about uh, <laughs> business onboarding. Okay. Well, you two should have a conversation later. All right. <laughs> so uh, our next story uh, was reported in uh, Reuters and other media, which is that Britain has set out legislation to regulate buy now, pay later credit. Uh, as Alex alluded to earlier. So Britain is setting out draft legislation to regulate buy now, pay later credit, saying the sector poses potential harm to consumers without thorough affordability checks. Buy now, pay later or BNPL products are largely unregulated and typically offer on-the-spot interest-free short-term loans that spread payments for retail goods like clothing. The sector nearly quadrupled during the pandemic in 2020 to £2.7 billion, or $3.28 billion. That's an unnecessarily precise figure from me there, sorry. The Finance Ministry, um, the Treasury, said it will launch a public consultation to take on legislation to regulate buy now, pay later, giving the Financial Conduct Authority, the regulator, powers to authorise operators and their activities. Alex, obviously it makes sense uh, to come to you first on this. This has been a sort of ongoing topic of debate, as you as you uh, pointed out earlier. Um, what what role is Klarna and the other buy now buy now pay later players going to play in this consultation? Yeah, so I mean, we'll be obviously be active in the consultation. I think if you rewind all the way back, so when the FCA initiated the Willard review, which incredibly, I think they initiated it in September 2020, and that came out in Jan Feb 2021. Um, and I think to be fair, that set the tone for what has been both from the Treasury and the FCA, you know, two years of very close engagement and, you know, retaking on board the view of both, you know, disruptors coming in like ourselves, but also incumbents, you know, industry groups, consumer groups. So I think, you know, that, I think that has been a positive over the past couple of years. And Klarna, you know, this next stage now where it's getting down into the detail of the specific rules, will we continue to work closely with Treasury and, and the FCA? I think it's, I think, been an element of frustration for, for many, the timescales that this has progressed to. But I think ultimately this isn't you know creating new regulation for a product like this you're not doing regularly so to get it right i think is important so um yeah we'll be responding and um i think largely having been through it you know the consultation draft consultation i think it looks pretty sensible and you know very much in line with what was issued back in the summer of 2022 so it sounds like you're saying you Broadly, you welcome it. You just almost almost want it to be faster, but but it's, yeah. I mean, I, I've been yeah very clear. I think for us, ultimately, I think regulation for these products. I think what, if you look at the past couple of years, what's almost been muddled uh, at times and often in the media has been the regulatory standing of the products. So the fact that yes, products at the moment that are short term credits are under twelve months interest free, they're not regulated at a product level. Um, and don't fall within the consumer credit tax. There are other rules and regulations that apply, whether that's financial promotions, 
um, contract terms, but specifically consumer credit tax doesn't apply to these products. Now, that has been muddled with, are these products good or bad for consumers? And do they drive kind of, are they helpful consumers? Do consumers have good, you know, outcomes using these products? So I think this step of, you know, progressing regulation, I think will be a positive because I think it will bring credibility to the products, but also then confidence to consumers ultimately. And having ultimately for a consumer, whether you choose Klarna in the checkout, whether you choose, you know, an 18 month interest bearing credit product in the checkout or utilize your credit card, for example, I think to have the same protections, for example, if something goes wrong, so the right to refer your complaint to the ombudsman, absolutely a consumer should have those same protections. And their protections that we can't give to our consumers until the regulation is in place. So again, that for us is why we've been keen for this to progress because we've made lots of product improvements, which where we haven't waited for regulation, but there are some where we are reliant on the regulation, the kind of rules to be in place to give those protections to our customers. Yeah, it makes sense for all sort of consumer lending to to be broadly equivalent in, in, in the way it's, it's regulated. Amy, let's bring you in. What, what did you think of this story? Yeah, I think the point you make, Alex, about bringing more confidence to consumers is an important one. And that will hopefully be an outcome of this consultation and the effective regulation that, that happens as a result of it. I think there have been quite a few um, developments recently from various firms around um, better reporting of customer information to the credit bureaus. Um, and I know that Klan has been involved in that along with others. And I think that move that the providers are making towards better, you know, protections of customers without the need for the regulation or sort of being proactive about it is a really positive thing. And another story I was I was reading about the other day was um, the buy now pay later provider Zilch working more closely with the debt charity Step Change as another really good example of a proactive move towards, okay, buy now, pay later, has potentially had um, some some damage done to its reputation in recent months due to the press, but actually the, the whole industry is shifting towards a more um, uh, having consumers' best interests at heart. So I, I think it's a good, it should lead to positive change here for consumers. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's interesting because I think all the way back to when Chris Willard issued his report, and I I think the report was very good, actually, really thorough and, and really, like detailed and, you know, based on data analytics plus kind of insights from understanding the products. But his point was very clear at the time to providers, don't wait for regulation, you know, get going, get moving. And if I think back, if you look at, if you know, look at the market over the past two years, I think two areas, I think you're spot on, Amy. Like one area that's massively progressed is the credit reporting. That's been like the bane in my life, trying to push that along over the past couple of years. A lot of work that's been required to be fair by the, you know, the credit reference agencies to get that, you know, the mechanisms in place to get the product structures in place to accept, you know, our customers' data so it can be reflected in their product, you know, their credit file, sorry. And that they've progressed that now. We're sharing data now with Experian and with TransUnion. And then the second part where, again, I think the FCA have done a good job alongside the ASA has been to kind of improve the standards of financial promotion, so marketing essentially of these products too and setting out, you know, what their expectations are to make sure that it is, you know, clear it's fair it's not misleading and i think providers have responded so much clearer checkout um disclosures you know everywhere you look in a buy now pay later ad in the uk now it will say it's a credit product so anyone who says that you know i was always a bit confused about credit products you know understanding it's a credit products ultimately when we asked our customers you know 95 percent have understood they had to repay it and that's essentially their definition of credit but that aside in the question do they understand it was credit people obviously don't fully understand what credit means credit versus debt versus borrowing versus a loan um but that is very clearly disclosed everywhere now so i think there are there have been a lot of you know a lot of progress i think the last step is to get some of the essentially regulatory or legislative protections in place so section 75 so sort of essentially bias protection that comes with most credit products and then also yeah FOS referral rights and we went to the FOS I've been to the FOS three times in the past two years to ask whether voluntarily we could um essentially fall within their jurisdiction because that is possible but unfortunately they weren't able to support that for various reasons I would think to be fair to them the fact that they were aware this would be coming through regulation so there's a you know you know they've got to balance their priorities um so yeah but really happy that that's progressing and now it's just keep momentum going ahead of this now much fated regulation day that they've referred to in their um, their consultation. Doug, how, how is this conversation playing out in Canada? Are you having the same kind of debates that, that we've been having in the UK and, and have been going on in, in many other markets too? 
Yeah. I, I wish that one time when I come on this podcast, I could say that Canada is leading a conversation, but it appears as though every time I join it, I have to say, yes, we are doing this, but it's much slower and further behind. So again, this has been um, uh, a point of conversation. Of course, I think where we are on that is we're not even at the point of regulation yet. We're at the point of kind of observing and there are being arguments made uh, towards this, along the same line, like, please do not regulate buy now, pay later, as if it were uh, a credit card. Uh, we've seen an explosion in Canada with buy now, pay later. I think it topped uh, just over $9 billion U.S. dollars last year, which was a pretty significant growth spurt. We've also seen like other players exit the market. So it's a, some frothy uh, competition, I believe, like Zip uh, came in and, and dipped right out. Um, but I think where we are, and this is a function of like relative to the U.K. and other markets around the world, we just do not have the infrastructure set up to quickly regulate, and we don't have the sandboxes to allow the innovation to easily play. Like uh, we have no open banking structure here to allow uh, sharing of consumer information that would make this easier, right? So individual agreements have to be signed. Like we're just so much further behind. So that this conversation is happening um, here, but it's it's at the uh, I would guess the advocacy stage while the our financial consumer agency of Canada is still closely monitoring this development. I wouldn't expect Canada to lead on this. We'll probably wait and see what drops elsewhere and then match that. I don't think I've spoken to a Canadian um, in fintech or financial services in the past two years without them bemoaning the lack of progress on open banking. <laughs> uh, I would say um, stay tuned. Be BetaKit might be running a story in the next week or so that will just reinforce um uh, how far behind we are, but I know we just ran a story uh, yesterday on some uh, information. Basically, like investment in Canadian fintech dropped almost six billion dollars uh, in in twenty twenty two. So it has been a, it has been a rough uh, year and a half period for for Canadian fintech. And again, we we're still dealing with the same structural problems. So much of this would be happening so much quicker if we had uh, the sandboxes, the frameworks, if open banking was delivered to allow that innovation to happen. Because to, to Alex's point, I think companies are do not want to wait because they've been waiting for almost a decade now. Um, so yes, we we are having these conversations, but we're further behind. And I would say the Canadian government, when it comes to a regulatory standpoint, it really very much enjoys taking a way to see approach to see what other markets do and then applying that. We're currently having that conversation right now when it comes to AI regulation, uh, following the US's lead and trying to push forward our own bills. Edwina, I want to bring you in because you haven't had a, a chance to, to chip in on this story. Um, obviously, you've, you've got a lot of expertise in things like sort of affordability, know your customer and so on. Um, what, do you, what do you think of this? Are you, are, you, are you seeing sort of fraud problems related to buy now, pay later? What's your perspective on sort of regulation and buy now, pay later? Yeah, so I definitely echo um, the other's conversation in terms of if there's not the regulatory, if there's not the regulation in place, there's going to be innovation that's caused by other things, either by commercial opportunity or by a pain point. Um, in terms of fraud, again, it's the same fraud that's coming up across the board. And, and the biggest fraud issue is the first party fraud. So a customer buying a product without intending to complete their payments on it. Um, and there's innovation that's happening on the fraud and identity side of things. Um, so technologies and partners that we can work with and use to kind of get ahead of that initially. Um, but the other innovation that's happening is more around trying to get access to more real-time credit data so you can see people's behavior on a more frequent basis and than like on a monthly reporting. Um, so folks like ClearScore tackling them out with open banking um, and, and other people trying to find ways of getting much more real-time access to the data. Fantastic. Um, final word on the story, Alex? Final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately the popularity of the products you know, and the shift in consumer preference is testament to the the benefit of cust you know the benefit that customers see and the preference for kind of not just the interest free nature of the products, but also the structured repayments are helping them stay out of long term debt. I think all things being equal, fast forward three five years time, once regulation is in place, it's bedded in. You know, huge confidence that this is the kind of path where preference is going to lie for consumers. And if you look at, for example. You know, Sweden, where we've been operating now for 18 years, where we were founded, buy now, pay later represents roughly 25% of e-commerce payments in the UK was still probably at around 5%. So there's still this kind of huge runway ahead of, you know, that we see kind of confidence there. Just interesting on that point, Edwina, about, you know, fraud, I completely agree. I think third-party fraud, lower risk, because ultimately this, the, 
SKU level data, so the kind of product level data and the consumer level data and understanding we have, we can be quite confident that we're identifying the right person making the transaction. I think some of the challenges is that propensity to pay. And I think some of that we mitigate through incremental buildup of people's kind of credit, like uh, what they'd be eligible for for credit, if you see what I mean. So start them off with a very small kind of purchase value where they'd be eligible, prove that they can, you know, they will repay before you build up to larger transactions, which again can mitigate the fraud risk. So again, I believe products are great. Let's work through the regulation, support the treasury, support the FCA and uh, make sure consumers have got the right protections and feel confident to use the products. Well said. Fantastic. Thank you. Okay, well, we're just going to take a quick pause here and we will be back very shortly. Hello and welcome, LFG people, to Fintech Insider, Blockchain Insider, 11FS Spotlight, 11FS Explores, Open Mic Night, After Dark. Through our podcasts, videos, newsletters, and live events, we have a direct line to a truly global fintech community. So if you're looking to sponsor and collaborate on content that connects with everybody from fintech beginners to the biggest VCs, then chat to our team at sponsors at 11fs.com or visit 11fs.com to find out more. Long live the community. Welcome back. Before we get on to the next half of today's news, a quick reminder to have a listen to the latest episode of our Fintech Insider Insights show. My colleague David Barton Grimley is joined by expert guests from Pine, Proportunity, and Digital Cat Consultancy to discuss the possibility of a super app for buying a home. Would you use one? Have a listen to that wherever you got this podcast. Why not queue it up in your podcast app after this one? Right. Let's get into our next story, which is that Royal Bank of Canada has bought an AI-powered real estate company, Ojo Canada. This was reported in Retail Bank International. RBC has acquired Ojo Canada, a real estate tech company powered by AI, for an undisclosed sum. According to RBC, the acquisition reinforces its commitment to helping Canadians at every stage of the home buying process by providing logical, technologically advanced and data-driven experiences and tools. Ojo Canada offers a tailored real estate search, on-demand access to a network of subject matter experts, and the backing of financial resources, whatever that means. The firm, which is part of the US-based real estate technology corporation Ojo Holdings, seeks to increase Canadians' access to the home buying process. Douglas, it makes sense to come uh, to you first on this. RBC has been quite active in this area. They've done a number of different things. Um, What does RBC's purchase of Ojo tell us about the sort of Canadian uh, market right now? Are fintechs feeling the squeeze? What did you think of this? Let's uh, put aside the market for a minute and talk about RBC specifically, because I think one of the more interesting conversations here is uh, how when when you bring smart, tech grounded operators into the bank, they can make moves. Um, If you're not familiar with RBCX, it was a net new division created about two years ago when uh, RBC poached Sid Paquette from Omer's Ventures, which is the uh, venture-backed firm on one of Canada's largest pension funds. Been completely remaking the division, and I think this purchase was actually done through what used to be RBC Ventures, uh, which was absorbed into RBCX. So th- this team is both handles all of their uh, venture investments, uh, their internal venture development division, and then making strategic purchases like this. I don't know if this would have been a purchase that uh, RBC would have made two years ago prior to. Sid taking over RBCX and looking at opportunities. Um, so really interesting story there to see how uh, one of Canada's largest banks has kind of changed their innovation stance by um, bringing some people in-house and kind of merging uh, teams together. On the other side, in terms of the market opportunity, I think this is uh, a pretty easy purchase decision to make, given that we are in a crazy housing crisis in Canada. Again, more good news. I'm just here giving uh, great Canadian news all the time. <laughs> um, access to home buying at all levels in every province across this country is uh, an existential threat. And uh, I think we've seen other Canadian um, uh, fintechs, prop techs in this space pivot. Uh, we, we broke a story recently about properly kind of moving out of their home purchase guarantee and things like that. They're they're downscaling because of what's happened to the market here. I think this is a, a smart pickup by RBC saying, um, we, can, we can buy this division. We can leverage to our conversation before the break, all the consumer data that we have, because we're one of the big five banks in Canada, and we can make 
this product more viable and, and a nice feather in our portfolio. So um, usually in downturns in the tech space, if you have a checkbook, it's a great time to be an investor and a buyer. And I think this is a reflection of both that, what's happening in the market, but uh, RBC having the people on the ground to kind of make these moves and, and have the buy-in to, to make the purchase. And just for listeners who are not familiar with the the sort of home buying market in Canada, you sort of talked about the sort of crisis and, and this, what, what exactly is happening in the in the Canadian um, sort of housing market at the moment? Well, we haven't built enough homes for like 25 years. And uh, the speculative purchase of real estate in our two, two of our five largest cities, I guess you have three if you go Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, has been to the point that the federal government actually outlawed for two years, the foreign purchase and ownership of net new real estate, uh, because I, I am podcasting in the um, east side of Toronto right now in this uh, rental home that I will uh, exist in until the end of my life, because it is impossible to find anything on the market to purchase. And it's some of the most expensive real estate in the world, let alone North America. So um, <laughs> that created a, a a boom time opportunity for PropTech two years ago. But as the as the bubble has burst a bit, it's created a situation where these companies have looked to dramatically pivot because there's there's no inventory, there's little purchasing power, and the uh, prices are such that they just can't find uh, the deal flow. So again, not an issue for RBC um, and something that they can probably cross-leverage with the rest of their customer data to take advantage of. Um, but I, I just think it's a really smart deal for them. Amy, let's let's bring you in on this. So, you know, Doug was saying, "Hey, this is you know a, a really exciting deal." Do we think? Do you think we're going to see more consolidation in the market? Is is this a sort of buyer's market for you know companies that are you know banks with capital that are looking to buy buy fintechs? And does it work? You know, if you if you're a bank and you buy a fintech, do you end up? You know, how do you make that succeed rather than just sort of squashing it? <laughs> Yeah, uh, there are two ways from a bank's perspective in terms of do they absorb that brand of the fintech that they're buying or do they keep that that fintech brand separate and and let it um try to succeed within its own under its own name. I mean, there's a story coming up in a little bit about um NatWest buying a pensions fintech for example, and there's always this question of will they just bring it under the NatWest bank arm? Or will they um, use it as as also having acquired not just the capabilities but the brand as well? Uh, so I think it can it can just massively depend. The success can depend on on how um, they choose to to what approach and strategy they choose to take. What's your view on this, Alex? I mean, I, I assume Klarna is not for sale, and you probably better not say if it is. But <laughs> but what's what's your view on on fintechs being acquired by sort of big banks, big insurers, and so on? Can it work? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I always say the kind of trade-off when you think about sort of big bank versus fintech, often you'll see, you know, the, the winning formula is having the scale, so the kind of customer base that, you know, the big incumbent banks will have, and often the fintech will have the differentiator or the kind of the new innovation or the, or the feature, and their challenge is to kind of get that out to, to scale. So, yeah, that's often, you know, it's the driver why so often, you know, fintechs themselves will reach a point where they're, you know, their own challenges, how do we scale this? How do we reach enough people and, you know, acquisition, you know, or selling ultimately or being acquired by a big bank can, can be a route. I think, you know, Klarna, we've made like many acquisitions over the last uh, couple of years. And, you know, our our approach to, to, to Amy's view has been much more down the kind of absorb the brand in so build bring that capability in and it very much you know what we've been looking at is kind of complementary capabilities that just add either almost like an extra feature or an underpinning capability that can bring value you know ultimately through to the end customers whether that's you know a new complementary product whether it's our you know buying an underwriting capability i actually joined clown and myself through a business that we sold to Klarna in 2018 so it was a point of sale finance company in the uk um, and it was, you know, for that, for Klarna, you know, acquiring us as a relatively small player was just a very quick way to, you know, massively accelerate their underwriting capability in the UK through the knowledge and skills that we had, you know, build out their sales team in the UK almost overnight um, and add an extra product in that we had a slightly longer term product. So, and I'm pleased to say many of us still are at Klarna four years <laughs> later, which is great. Um, but that, you know, if you can get that right, 
and the, the fit can work well. Um, I think Klarna is pretty tough and good in the sense that it's a very quick absorb in and kind of integrate it in very quickly, which I think I think sometimes these can go a bit wrong when you, you're not totally clear on how you are going to integrate it in. And then you get, you know, cultural differences within and pockets of, you know, different organizations within an organization, which I think ultimately doesn't work particularly well for long term success. Yeah, just one note to follow up here. Uh, uh, RBC has been partnering with Ojo in the Canadian market since at least 2018. So they had been doing trials, partnerships, development. So there was there was a specific relationship there. But to Alex's point, it is really interesting that in Canada you would see uh, an acquisition like this done, and uh, a big five bank like RBC look to keep the flanker brand identified because again we have such a limited competition opportunity here that uh, many of the banks like using services like this and and not white labeling them but pushing that brand out there it's something we also see in the in the telecom space it's a um, entry point opportunity for new uh, customer acquisition but I think that's a I, again maybe to Alex's point I wouldn't feel confident about this if it hadn't been RBCX making the acquisition like uh, if it was traditional RBC two years ago I wouldn't feel the same way. Um, because I, I have, having worked at large enterprise companies and, and knowing that when we acquired startups, we were just watching them be about to be ripped apart. Um, it, it can be, it can be quite terrible. I, I don't think this is the instance, um, because of the people who are, who are signing the deal. That's a really a, a great point, Doug. Edwina, I'd love to bring you in for the sort of last, last word on this story. Um, interested in your thoughts on the story and also interested in if you've got a perspective on artificial intelligence, um, whether you're using sort of that at Alloy and you know what you thought of this deal. Yeah, we are, we are not using artificial intelligence at Alloy, but we have a chance for our customers to do that and then, and then pull that into our system. So, but yeah, always, I think it's always impressive if you can um, pull off a successful acquisition and keep a strong brand. So Alex, it was just really impressive hearing the track record at Klarna. So it's not an easy thing to do. Fantastic. Thank you. Okay, well, we will move on to our next story. I'm desperate to say that we've got a, a report on home buying that we're about to publish at 11FS, and we actually included a case study of RBC because of the really interesting work that RBCX has been doing. Um, so I'm delighted by this story and can't wait for us to publish our report. However, moving on, our next story is that US fintech FIS is to spin off the World Pay Payments business. This was reported in the Financial Times. So the US-based financial services group FIS has said it will spin off World Pay, the payments business it acquired for $43 billion just four years ago, after it failed to successfully integrate the two companies. So FIS acquired WorldPay in 2019 to create one of the largest providers of financial infrastructure that underlies the bank payment sector. FIS's decision to break up comes after activist shareholders D.E. Shaw and Jana Partners called on the company to review its business strategy, including considering undoing the 2019 deal. The idea behind the deal was to have the two businesses that would mutually benefit each other and generate more than $4 billion of free cash flow annually in an industry where bigger is considered to be better. However, the payments arm has struggled since FIS's acquisition, which has made the price it paid look steep. So, wow. Um, how difficult is it? to admit that a merger hasn't worked. Alex, I think I'm going to throw that one to you because um, you know you were sharing some good examples of mergers that have worked. Um, have you seen elsewhere in the industry you know, examples of mergers that haven't worked? How hard is it for senior executives to say, okay, we thought this deal was amazing and it just isn't? Yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to think, you know, we've seen, you know, some level of consolidation. If you look at the kind of square block afterpay kind of consolidation that you see there and like directly in our space and obviously, you know, PayPal at various times have made acquisitions. I think, and obviously we saw Apple actually buy, you know, Credit Kudos actually was an interesting one. You know, we talked about that previously. Um, look, you go through, you've got to think when you go into an acquisition, you know, you've, you're, you've assessed, you know, where you believe the economies of scale are going to be. I think what looks particularly odd in this case was, was the overlap of the customer base? And I think that's where this probably hasn't played out in that you'd like to think that you're passing business or leads between two organizations and you get this kind of that amplifier effect, um, you know, two plus two equals five, um, which clearly has, you know, appears to not be playing out here. Um, if I think to why not and you, you see it in the sort of the banking sector almost back to that point we were saying earlier about say Klarna's model is kind of global global product set 
and localized. If you look at a lot of the larger banks, they are essentially just conglomerates of many different banks under one umbrella brand. And that's the point where you've maybe kept one umbrella and then you've got all these essentially local brands, all completely distinct kind of technology platforms. So, you know, to your world, Edwina, they'd be using all different tools by different country and different market and different standards. You end up with this huge overhead, essentially, of complexity above that. So you end up having to employ more people to oversee the multiple platforms and the risk, compliance, all that kind of stuff. And hence, you just don't get the kind of, ultimately, you're adding more cost um, and, you know, not necessarily realizing the revenue upside that you'd like to see. So I think that is, again, sort of testament to the approach that we've taken, which has been much more about acquire a specific product feature, particular underpinning capability, a specific team, maybe it's to accelerate entry into a new market, but then very quickly integrate in. If I think to Price Runner, who we acquired, you know, it's a large organization acquired last year. Acquisition went through in April. The capability in terms of, say, price comparison was integrated fully into the Klarna app within, the, you know, branded as Klarna by October of that year. And that, you know, very quickly then, you it just feels like, an additive service or capability that your products get to benefit from. Not, you know, one minute I'm in this app or this capability, the next minute I'm over here, how on earth does this join up together? And I think that's where um, these can sometimes go wrong. What do you think, Edwina? Do you do you sort of agree with Alex's analysis? Yeah, I do. I'm also fascinated by uh, the kind of the personal dynamics that would have been a play here like you know to have this acquisition go through in the first place the senior stakeholders that would have been involved and and having to walk that back actually shows some level of um humility or or like awareness as well because quite often you can have projects that end up you know continuously being funded or continuously being pushed because of an ego at play within an organization so i find that quite interesting to think about what's gone on behind the scenes here as well yeah, it is it's, it's really, really interesting. Amy, let's, let's, let's bring you, bring you in. Um, it, can we, you know, can we think of other examples where companies have sort of come together and then realized it was a, 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 a you know, not a, not a good move? I mean, is this, do you think this could be good for WorldPay in the longer run? Um, do you think being, I mean, FIS is a kind of a different type of business, right? Um, different customers, different, probably different culture. Um, yeah, I think in the long run, inevitably, it will be better for both businesses if they've got to a point where they've decided this is not going to work for either of us because of culture, because because of customer base, because of um, multiple reasons. I'm sure. Then the fact that they're splitting apart is inevitably going to be going to be better for WorldPay in the long run. I would say. Douglas, let's let's bring you in. I'm I'm curious whether you've talked to uh, you know fintech founders with scars on their backs from from mergers that didn't work, or whether you've seen any sort of similar deals where you know announced with great fanfare only to be unwound quietly, perhaps um, a few a few years later. What, what did you think of this story? Well, does Twitter count as one? Like, I know that's not fintech, but I think we're watching that in real time, like a little bit of buyer's remorse. Um, I, I would say. <laughs> In the Canadian fintech space, again, because of the competition considerations here, uh, oftentimes um, uh, challenger banks, fintech startups don't have access to the payment rails. They don't have banking licenses. They often require some sort of partnership with the major banks here to even offer services or compete. So um, I think that is the source of the scarring more than uh, deals gone wrong because the incumbents have all the leverage. Uh, I do know there was a... Uh, National Bank acquired a majority stake in Flinks, I think, two years ago. Uh, and Flinks offers uh, uh, data sharing and, and uh, customer information scraping because, again, we don't have open banking. And I think that's been pretty successful on both sides because uh, there's been a private open banking movement in Canada where the major incumbents are, are doing um, interesting acquisitions or partnerships there. I don't think we've seen anything as major as this where it's walked back. But I think Alex hit it on the nose before and what we were talking about in the previous segment like is a really good example of how things can go wrong if you don't do the diligence, if you don't understand the ultimate intention of the uh, integration of the partnership. And to Edwina's point, like if it's an if it's an ego thing, which you can see happen uh, at large banks sometimes where it's it's the home run swing to justify um, a share price or desire to get into a new market and not thoroughly thought through. I, I just keep going back to the how this is the exact opposite of the um, Ojo example that we were just talking about, where it's a multi-year partnership. They obviously knew at RBC 
um, how this was uh, a net new customer value for them or offered a greater return for their existing customers, and they had the historicals for it, um, so they're able to pull the trigger there. I don't, I don't think they were swinging on um, on hope there to hit a home run. Um, and it can, it can go, it can go really wrong if you're not doing the diligence. It can indeed. Fantastic summary. <laughs> Thank you, Doug. Okay, now for the section of the show called Big Click Energy, which is a quick-fire roundup of some of the more click-worthy news from this week. Amy, do you want to start us off? Yes, so first story is that NatWest um, has bought a pensions fintech in a £144 million deal, which will shake up savings. And this is from City AM. So NatWest is to buy pensions fintech cushion for £144 million in a move the bank says will bolster its offering of financial wellbeing products. The FTSE 100 lender said it would take an 85% stake in the London-based fintech, while the company's existing management would retain the remaining 15%. The chief of NatWest Wealth Business, Peter Flavel, said Cushion's disruptive proposition would support customers as they save for the future and manage their financial well-being. Cushion currently has around 500,000 customers and manages around £1.8 billion in assets for savers. The firm's chief, Ben Pollard, told CityAM last year that its aim was to shake up the boring pensions market. My take on this, well, I was firstly interested in what it meant by NatWest will bolster its offerings of financial well-being products. It's quite vague, but I did have a look on Cushion's um, website because it wasn't a fintech I'd heard of before, but their proposition does have some really interesting elements. So the first thing that stood out was its app first. Um, so the, as the customer, you can see savings, investments, pensions via the single dashboard in the app. Um, and I like how it's built around encouraging people to be more involved with their pensions. For example, you can change your contributions really easily. Um, and actually, I think NatWest could do really well out of bringing something like this to its customers. Yeah, I agree. And NatWest has a good track record of, of financial education in schools and so on. It's 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 done a lot of work on that over, over the years. So good for NatWest. Yeah, I mean, it recently acquired Rooster Money, the, the children's finance app that I think is now brought under its own brand. But that's a really good example of um, the sort of financial education piece as well. Okay, and the next story is that Revolut has launched a donations page to support victims of the recent earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. So following the terrible earthquake that affected um, large parts of Turkey and Syria, Revolut has launched a fundraising page to support those affected by the natural disaster. Revolut has partnered with several charities in the UK and Ireland to make it easy for customers to donate to the victims of the earthquake. Through the donations section of their Revolut app, uh, customers can donate to selected charities such as the United Nations High Commission of Refugees, the Red Cross, the Disasters Emergency Committee, Save the Children and Action Against Hunger. They can then choose a one-off donation or establish a periodic donation if they wish to make regular contributions. Um, And so I want to say I think it's fantastic that Revolut has done this. Uh, Revolut was very quick after the Russian invasion of Ukraine um, to enable people to make donations to uh, Ukrainians who were displaced by the invasion. It's fantastic to see Revolut again moving really quickly to try and get help to people who really need it. It's a really good example of fintech for good. Um, So fantastic work by everyone at Revolut who's made that happen. And I hope they're able to bring a lot of uh, support um, to all the people who are suffering, you know, the millions of people who've been affected by that and are, are, are terribly suffering. So great work. Well done, Revolut. Okay. Also, After Dark is back. Uh, we will be recording our FinTech Insider News show live at the Steel Yard in London on March the 29th. So if you're in London, Alex, Edwina, uh, and, and of course many of our listeners, come and watch this podcast live uh, with all the mistakes left in, um, but also grab some drinks, some food, and make some new friends uh, across the FinTech industry. All of the details uh, can be found on the 11FS website and social media channels, or click the link in the podcast description. Okay, let's bring everybody back uh, for the final section, looking at a more light-hearted story from the past week, which is that CIBC, Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, doesn't want couples to sugarcoat financial discussions this Valentine's Day. So the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, known as CIBC, used Valentine's Day to draw attention to the connection between love and money with a new ad campaign. 
creative agency Courage developed a series of conversation hearts with financial messages such as talk money to me, are you invested, and let's consolidate instead of the more traditional romantic saying on the heart-shaped candies. I can't quite believe I'm reading this. The hearts were shared with influencers and given to employees and customers at the bank's flagship locations on Valentine's Day. Okay, how difficult is it to talk to a significant other about money issues? Doug, since this is a Canadian brand, I think I have to throw this to you first. I just put two and two together and realized why I'm here so that you could interrogate a Canadian about (laughs) what the heck is going on with this. Uh, I would say, again, uh, how am I going to try to be serious with this? I'm going to provide a layer of professional analysis because I'm a journalist and a, and a professional. Um, it's, it's very difficult to talk about money in Canada. We are, uh, socially repressed when it comes to finances. And, uh, as a, country, we, the vast majority of us live pretty close to paycheck to paycheck and have a, a high high debt service amount. So the conversations are not open. I think, you know, we were talking about simple previously Canadian fintechs. Part of it's uh, the response amongst the younger demographic because they led with campaigns having open conversations about questions about money, finances, and things like that. So, you know, good on the agency for convincing CIBC to have a little bit of fun um, at a time when it's the bank is making record profits. Uh, I would say, like, show me your portfolio would have been a great message. Like, open your portfolio to me. Like, I, I we could we could riff on that for days. I, I, sorry, I can't provide any serious analysis to this. I apologize on behalf of all Canadians and the most Canadian banks. All right, should we try the ladies and see if we can get any serious analysis? <laughs> uh, <Edwina. laughs> I love this. Yeah, I think this is great. Um, One of Melinda French's Gates' three most impactful things for gender equality is getting money into women's hands and into a digital bank account. So the more we normalize conversations about money, particularly at a couple level, the better. So I'm fully into the talk money to me and like, let's get all digital banks, uh, consumers um, on this message. Fantastic. Amy? Something I I think um, is a really helpful driver of talking about money, even if it's at a very simple level. Um, So I, for example, have a joint Starling account with my partner and the fact that it's so transparent and that if either of us spend on the joint card, we both get a notification to our phone or get one on my Apple Watch. And it's just, it means that, yes, okay, we're constantly spending money, we're using this account, but it's prompting those conversations and prompting you to be transparent because the way that um, your bank is reporting the spending to you is very transparent. So I think that that should help to drive a positive shift towards greater transparency. I, I remember talking to a bank a few years ago about what their most popular alert at that time was the um, the alert on the joint account that told you when your partner had spent money. <laughs> it, it can be really unnerving. Like if I'm away for the weekend and I get a notification on my watch saying that there's been some spending going on. <laughs> All right. Um, so our last question is going to be, if you could send a love heart to somebody in the financial service industry, who would it be? And what would the message be? Uh, Amy. I feel like choosing one person is quite high pressure. So instead of just one person, I would choose my favorite fintech. And people in the team tease me about how much I love this fintech, but it's Plum, the savings and investments fintech. So if I had a love heart, I'd send it to Plum, I suppose, the leadership team. (laughs) Edwina, how about you? I want to do the talk money to me, to all consumer digital banking players. Great stuff. Doug? Uh, I'm inspired by uh, Edwina's comment. I'm thinking about I don't I don't know her name, but the uh, manager at my local bank branch when I was a university student, who sat me down to teach me uh, actually how credit worked, and that putting uh, my university tuition per semester on my uh, starter credit card was a surefire way to ruin my credit throughout my twenties. She basically saved my life. I don't remember her name, but I would send her uh, a box of chocolates at the very least. And Alex. So I chose mine based on the fact that this week we'd made progress on buy now, pay later regulation. So I decided to go for Alice Tapper, who is a uh, personal finance journalist and campaigner. And she was the one who started the original campaign for buy now, pay later regulation back in 2020. Um, I met her for the first time last year after like lots of online chat 
Um, and actually, I think she's done an amazing job actually to raise awareness, um, you know, for the niche regulation in this sector, but also for her view of the sector to evolve and to listen. And actually, when I met her last year in person, it was just really interesting because she was very balanced about seeing the benefits of the uh, the products, but equally, you know, where additional protections can come to consumers. So I have so much respect for her in terms of what she's helped kind of prompt. Um, and so I was looking at Love Hearts. Most of them have really wrong messages on. So I decided to go for You Rock, which was one of the ones I saw when I Googled, because I think she does rock. I think she's done an amazing job. Thank you. Okay, well, that wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much uh, to to my guests uh, today. Where can people uh, find out a little bit more about each of you? Uh, Amy? It's LinkedIn for me, Amy Gavin. Douglas? Uh, you can read my works on betakit.com or check me out at Tron on Twitter while it still exists. Maybe check out our fintech newsletter. Edwina? Uh, LinkedIn as well, Edwina Johnson. And Alex? Yeah, LinkedIn. So uh, Alex Marsh or uh, ADG Marsh. There's another Alex Marsh in America who's a porn star. So I use DG quite a lot as in my handles, Alex DG Marsh. <laughs> well, that's awkward. <laughs> Thank you. And as for me, Benjamin Ensor, you can find me on LinkedIn or at 11fs.com. And thank you all so much uh, for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show today. Please join the conversation on social media or email us at podcast at 11fs.com to let us know what you want to hear about. Thank you so much and goodbye. Goodbye.